Hello and welcome to the September 2019 episode of the JPO Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and we'll be bringing you synopses of six featured articles from this month's print episode of the journal, as well as three interviews with authors, including Lindsay Andras from CHLA, Sean Gilbert from UAB, and Walter Trong from Gillette. To start things off, we'll look at an article that comes from collaborators at several institutions, including lead author Gretchen Oliver, a PhD with the Auburn University Sports Medicine and Movement Lab, and senior author James Andrews with the Andrews Institute in Gulf Breeze, Florida. Historically, there's been anecdotal concern that throwing curveballs could be detrimental for little league pitchers. So the authors conducted a biomechanical study and did not find any evidence to support this concern. They enrolled 14 little league pitchers who were all at least 11 years old, All participants had substantial experience, including regularly throwing multiple types of pitches and games. Sensors were attached throughout the extremities and trunk to collect EMG and motion data. The participants then threw an entire baseball game in the lab, including fastballs, curveballs, and changeups with maximum effort. Of note, throwing was stopped at 85 pitches if the simulated game was not yet over, since that's the recommended pitch count for this age group. There was no difference in throwing mechanics between the different types of pitches, which means the pitchers were appropriately using different grips to throw curveballs and change-ups rather than changing their arm motion. Additionally, fatigue over the course of the game did not lead to altered mechanics, which means the pitch counts for 11-year-olds seemed to be a safe limit. This was a rigorous study, and I believe we can now feel confident that curveballs are not dangerous for well-coached little league pitchers ages 11 and up who abide by pitch counts. The major limitation in my eyes is the patient selection. While this is a very well-done study, it includes only experienced pitchers who are at least 11 years old and who are familiar with curveballs. It is still possible that younger pitchers and those who are not as quote-unquote good or as well-trained could be throwing curveballs with poor mechanics that cause shoulder or elbow problems. In fact, mechanics could even be different and detrimental among older, more experienced pitchers. Hopefully, there will be further studies to determine appropriate ages and to test our current recommendations for pitch counts. And next, I'll hand things over to my co-host, Craig, from UNC Chapel Hill. This is Craig Lauer. I am broadcasting from Montreal, Canada, where I'm at the uh, SRS annual meeting. I have on the phone with me Dr. Walter Truong of Gillette Children's Hospital, who is here to discuss his uh, newly printed article, Should Proximal Femoral Implants Be Removed Prophylactically or Reactively in Children with Cerebral Palsy? Senior author on this is uh, Uni Narayan from Toronto Sick Kids Hospital and there's a collaboration between the two institutions. So as a little bit of background, obviously we use proximal femoral implants often to stabilize the osteotomies and cerebral palsy following treatment for the hip dysplasia. Once they heal, uh, some centers routinely remove these implants, and we call this more of a prophylactic approach to dealing with these implants. And others uh, perform a more reactive approach or only remove them uh, when they're problematic. So the purpose of this study was to compare the outcomes between two centers that vary in their approach. So Dr. Trong, thank you again for joining me. Um, would you be able to summarize the main findings of the article for our listeners? Yeah, I think we looked at a large group of patients and over 600 uh, patients total between the two groups, 300 in each group. And the main finding was that there was no uh, big difference in terms of complications if you removed it around one year versus around four years when uh, most of the reactive removals were done. And also that the main finding was that if you were in the reactive group, you had a slightly higher chance of having and issues such as fracture or infection uh, related to having that plate in there longer compared to the group that took it out at about a year. The other finding was that in kids less than eight, uh, there was a trend towards them having higher chance of having that issue with fracture or infection if you left it in. I really appreciate the practical nature of this study. 
how often do we see these patients in our clinics and wonder what the best course of action is regarding their plates. I think this is a practical and simple way to address that. I want to know how you and your co-authors got this off the ground and what made you ask this question. Yeah, so uh, I trained at the University of Minnesota, and part of that is spending time at Gillette, uh, at least six months here. And I, I chose the residency because of Gillette because I knew I was going to do pediatrics. And what I noticed was that through my training, it was a prophylactic approach. And one year, we regularly took the plates out, and I didn't question it at the time. But when I went to fellowship at the kids, it, they left them all in. And I remember treating a few of the complications related, including fracture above the blade plate as it grew into the subtroch area and had to fix these in these quite young children. So that prompted my question of how often does this happen? How often does it become a problem by leaving the plates in? And is it an acceptable rate for me to do this strategy instead of putting kids through that routine removal at one year. Right. Our memories seem to only go back so far as our last complication. And anecdotally, I feel as though the times that I've seen a complication due to a plate, the treatment seems to stick in my mind as being more difficult. But your results actually show that you know, the complication rate at the time of the plate removal is the same, whether you're taking it out because of a problem with infection or fracture, or whether it's just a routine planned removal of implants. Is that right? Right. So in terms of how you, if, if you took it out at one year versus four years because of whatever reason, the complication of that second surgery, uh, the rate of complication was the same. Uh, I think anecdotally, everyone thinks that at four years, you can have all this bony overgrowth, you can have chip things away, you can have fracture infection from just the removal. And that wasn't the case, even when you isolated the uh, procedure to an isolated implant removal versus doing it as part of a concomitant procedure or several procedures. I also love the subtle complexity of the analysis. So you ultimately decided to stratify the reasons for plate removal. 20% of the patients in the reactive approach ended up having their plates removed, but only about 5% of these were due to fracture and infection. And your paper considers those reasons to be more significant than others, such as pain causing removal, for example. So compared to the prophylactic approach's 1% rate, that means there's a 4% increase in the worrisome complications of plate retention. And that leads to your conclusion that to prevent one of these worrisome complications, you would need to prophylactically remove plates from 25 individuals. Yeah, so, and, and I think that's, that's actually the crux of the paper, right? So you're right, the pain and things that can happen anytime, and those removals you don't expect to be a problem. But if it's a fracture, that takes longer to heal. It is a bigger deal, and it's uh, distressing to the family. I remember that from fixing those. And in infection, obviously, there's more risk and a more prolonged course in terms of afterwards. The, it was actually, actually Dr. Narayan's idea to do a number needed to treat as part of the analysis, given mm -hmm. that 4%. And I think it was a great idea. It, was, it actually crystallizes exactly what we wanted to express from our data. And it actually crystallizes for people, easy to understand, is that number enough or worth it for me to leave them all in uh, or not? And in the paper, you guys do end up making kind of a, I would say, gentle recommendation. You put the facts out there and the numbers, you know, number needed to treat being 25. But then I think you say that that does support a more reactive approach. How easy was it to convince your compatriots at Gillette Children's that you know, this data does mean that we should maybe be doing a more reactive approach? Uh, to this problem. Yeah, I think I think it's a little tough here. I think we had brought it up to the group and we just re-brought it up again, myself and Dr. Tom Bacek, who is my 
partner. And he, um, he brought it up. He was actually very much a prophylactic removal uh, advocate until we did this project and he's converted. And he was the one actually that brought it up with me again, that we should approach our group, 15 of us, that we need to maybe leave the plates in if they're older than eight and not have any issues. Evidence-based medicine at work. Um, it's changed yeah, some exactly. of your practices and it's probably a slow change as these things go. Well, I really appreciate your time. I um, appreciate the candor with the interview. Thank you to you and your co-authors for all the hard work and appreciate you joining me today. Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Craig. Next, we'll turn things over to Josh Holt at Iowa. Very interesting, Craig. Nicely done. I will now present the manuscript from the group in Milan entitled Guided Growth of the Proximal Femur for the Management of Hip Dysplasia in Children with Cerebral Palsy. In this manuscript, the authors look to build upon the limited evidence of a relatively novel use of guided growth and report their retrospective single institution outcomes of temporary medial hemiepiphysidesis of the proximal femur using a transficil screw in children with cerebral palsy. The authors review the clinical and radiographic outcomes of 56 hips in 28 consecutive patients, ages 4 to 11, who underwent guided growth of the proximal femur using a transficil screw from 2007 through 2010. All patients had GMFCS 3 through 5 cerebral palsy and had radiographic and clinical evaluations performed at 6, 12, and 60 months following the index surgery. Radiographic outcomes included pre- and post-operative measures of acetabular index, neck shaft angle, and migration percentage. Concomitant procedures were performed in the majority of patients and included four patients with anterior distal femoral temporary epiphysiodesis and 22 patients with distal hamstrings lengthening. Hamstrings and adductor Botox injections were performed in three kids at two years post-op. The authors report significant improvements in all three radiographic outcomes at each of the follow-up periods. Neck shaft angle improved from 156 to 142 degrees by five years. Acetabular index improved from 23 degrees to 17 degrees by 60 months post-op. And migration percentage improved from 34% to 23% at final follow-up. Multiple regression analysis revealed that a decrease in migration percentage, time from surgery, and younger patient age were all significantly influenced by the decrease of the neck shaft angle. As one might expect, the proximal femoral epiphysis grew off the screw by 24 months in nine hips. Initial attempts by the authors at screw replacement were complicated by screw breakage in one patient, so the authors then resorted to placing a second parallel screw rather than exchanging the screw in four hips. In three of the hips that showed growing off of the screw without additional intervention, further elevation in acetabular index and progressive hip dislocation occurred, resulting in need for varus derotational femoral shortening osteotomy with associated Pemberton pelvic osteotomies after screw removal. The authors report no cases of AVN, chondrolysis, wound infection, or femoral neck fracture. They also did not find any significant difference in outcomes when comparing patients of different GM-FCS levels. The authors suggest that their results strongly support the safety and efficacy of temporary medial hemiepiphysiodesis of the proximal femur. In particular, they highlight the fact that no patient developed AVN and none had an increase in neck shaft angle within five years of undergoing the procedure. They also suggest that their results at five years 
showing an absolute improvement in migration percentage of over 10%. That's a 32% relative improvement. Makes a strong case that guided growth of the proximal femur is superior to early soft tissue release about the hip. Further, they argue that younger patients with greater growth potential are the optimal candidates for the procedure, which is supported by their data. In summary, short and intermediate outcomes following temporary medial hemiepiphysiodesis of the proximal femur using a transficeal screw are encouraging and should be considered as a minimally invasive treatment to prevent further joint subluxation, dislocation, and progressive hip dysplasia in growing children with cerebral palsy. Thanks, Josh. We'll turn things over to Julia now for the next article and an interview with author Lindsay Andres. This is your co-host, Julia Sanders, from Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm here with Dr. Lindsay Andras from Children's Hospital of L.A. Dr. Andras will be discussing with us her paper entitled, Pediatric Femoral Shaft Fractures, a Multi-Center Review of the AIOS Clinical Practice Guidelines Before and After 2009. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you for having me. So first, could you summarize the AOS clinical practice guideline for pediatric femur fractures for our listeners who may not be familiar with it? Sure. So the guidelines came out in 2009, and they're really a series of 14 recommendations. Some of the things they really were not able to recommend for or against, but overall the sort of treatment algorithm is for kids that are less than six months, typically treat them with a pavlic harness or spike a cast. The six-month to five-year-old range recommends spica casting, and the question there in terms of debate is traction with delayed spica casting in kids with significant shortening, but for kids that don't have significant shortening, gravitating towards early spica casting. And then for the five to 11-year-old range, they recommend flexible intramedullary nails, and the greater than 11-year-old range, intramedullary nails, rigid or plating is also an option. Perfect. Thanks for the summary. So now I'd love to know what inspired you to evaluate the use of the CPG. Did you feel that it impacted your practice directly? Well, actually, I think the credit for the concept on this paper should go to Jeff Holder. Um, and I think he very astutely realized that there was still a lot of variability between centers despite the guidelines. And you know, one of the strengths, I think, of this paper is that there are over 2,600 fractures in this series, and they're from four geographically different centers. So we get a pretty honest look, I think, at the areas of equipoise that remain throughout the country. Great. And then, so what did the group find nationally? You know, what has changed since 2009? Well, one of the really interesting things that were the two major changes that we found in that time frame actually don't seem to be things that are a result of the guidelines. And that, so one trend that we saw was increased use of locked intramedullary nails in patients less than 11, which isn't the recommendation of the guidelines and then increased surgical treatment in patients less than five years of age, which is also, again, not the algorithm that the guideline gives us. So it's interesting that neither of these are really recommended by the CPG, and some of the lack of impact seen in this study that I think we do need to consider that might be a a confounding factor is that all the centers here were fairly high-volume academic pediatric centers. So I do think to a certain extent they were probably using similar treatment algorithms even prior to the published clinical practice guidelines. So it might not have had as much of an impact on these four centers as it may in other parts of the country that don't 
to as high of a volume or in places outside of the country. That makes total sense. So, you know, speaking of that trend toward using locking rigid nails uh, more in younger kids and then also treating kids under five more surgically, what do you think is the biggest contributor to that trend? Well, it's hard to say for sure, and it probably is multifactorial, but I think my best estimate is that for the kids less than 11, I think some of the increased use of lock in your medullary nails probably comes from the increased incidence of obesity and that we're seeing a lot of kids that are of a weight that they don't do well with flexible intermedullary nails. So we know that in heavier kids, it can be harder to hold the reduction and you can have more shortening with the flexible nails. So I think that might be one of the factors that has driven people to using the rigid nails in a younger age group. And then the other thing is may just strictly be the availability of implants. You know, we now have smaller and smaller sizes and smaller lengths and diameters. So there are some options for sometimes an eight or nine-year-old that wouldn't have been there 10 years ago. But I also wanted to say a little word about the kids under five getting surgery. I think that's a real area of opportunity for practice improvement. And I think some of the variability there is probably related to the fact that treatment with skeletal traction has fallen out of favor with patients and physicians and payers. So with an option of treating fractures that may be more unstable fracture patterns surgically and shortening the hospital stay, I think we're seeing a lot of the flexible intramedullary nails gain popularity even in that younger age group. The other thing beyond that is that spice casts are notoriously unpleasant treatment option, although they are effective, and there's a high incidence of skin issues, needs for cast wedging, things like that. And so it's not surprising that people have pushed the envelope, I think, a little bit to use flexi nails as an alternative. As you know, our group is actively working on making the findings of Andrea Kramer's group with a functional brace treatment potentially more accessible, as I still haven't met the parent that was thrilled when we said we were going to put their toddler in a body cast. And I think there may be a more middle ground option that's cost-effective and avoids anesthesia, but we're still in the midst of a prospective trial on that that's funded by POSNA, so the jury's still out. Great. Well, we'll we'll look forward to sharing those results with our listeners as well. You know, to your other point about still having an amount of variability across the country, despite it being academic centers, what what do you think is the primary reason for the amount of variance that we see? Um, And do you see that changing with time? That's a great point, because with any guideline, there will be rule breakers. And the clinical practice guidelines are not a substitute for clinical judgment. But the amount of variability that we saw between the four centers really speaks to the lack of equipoise in management. For example, we had 74% of the submuscular plates were at one center, and I think that really highlights the need for more prospective trials that can lead to more direct comparison between some of these treatment options and probably take into account variables other than just age. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your research and insights. Thank you for having me. Next, we'll discuss an article from the University of Alabama at Birmingham entitled National Databases in Pediatric Orthopedic Surgery from senior author Sean Gilbert. Large database research rapidly became very popular over the last decade, though many have questioned the quality of this big data. The authors have compared two popular pediatric surgical databases, the NISQIP, or National Surgery Quality Improvement Program, and the Kids Inpatient Database, aka KID or KID. The NISQIP includes surgeries and 30 days of postoperative care, whereas the KID database only includes inpatient stays. 
Not surprisingly, there were many more complications reported in the NISQIP database since many complications happen after the initial inpatient stay. They also found major differences in the demographics of children treated for the same condition, like skiffy and scoliosis, between the two databases, likely based on which hospitals are included in each database. Finally, the NISQIP is based on CPT codes, while the KID database is based on ICD-9 codes, which can lead to different results when trying to study the same thing. In conclusion, this article serves as an evidence-based reminder that big databases are riddled with limitations. They can be useful for studying very rare events like PEs and mortality, but readers should consider the details of the study methods very, very closely before accepting the results. I'm now joined by senior author Sean Gilbert to discuss the study. Dr. Gilbert, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, glad to be here. Have you yourself participated in large database studies? Yes, we are participating center at our hospital for NISQIP. Then, of course, I've mined the data for a number of research studies. And in all honesty, how confident are you in the results of your own database studies? Well, I think it all depends on the question. And I think that's really the key for these studies is making sure that the question asked of the database can be answered with the database. I've probably rejected twice as many study questions as I've actually published on because I found that the answer just wasn't really attainable through the database. Are there any certain things that you look for in database studies to make you trust the results? Or is it more a matter of just diving into the methodology of each individual study? I think, again, it is a matter of ensuring that the question that's asked is appropriate for the database and then making sure that they've acknowledged the limitations appropriately. Do you think there are large database studies with questionable or incorrect conclusions or that might have had other conclusions if they used a different database that make it through the peer review process regularly? Well, I don't think of a specific example off the top of my head, but I'm certain that it is possible to reach a wrong conclusion, especially when you're dealing with very rare events and you're attributing associations to have causation. Many journals have embraced a quote-unquote backlash against database studies and in some cases simply refused to publish them. The pendulum has swung very quickly. Where would you like to see the pendulum land? Well, I think that there were initially a large number of studies that came out in part because there was quite a bit of low-hanging fruit. So I think that some of the studies that just describe the rate of certain events may not be very useful. And so I don't think we need to see a lot more of those I do still think that they are useful for answering certain types of questions, like trying to find some associations with rare complications that could then lead to additional research studies or better research design of future studies. That makes a lot of sense. Before we wrap things up, are there any other points from this article you'd like to bring out? So for data entry with the KID database, it's based on discharge diagnoses. And those are entered by coders at the end of a patient's stay as they disassemble the chart. In contrast, NISQIP is entered prospectively by a research nurse who collects the data and reviews the chart and has a better understanding of medical terminology and physiology and processes. I would maybe trust the diagnosis a little bit more for those. Got it. Makes sense. Dr. Gilbert, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time and thank you for these thoughtful answers. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for doing the pod. Lastly, I'll hand things back over to Julia Sanders for an interesting article that considers the indications for the modified Dunn procedure. I'd like to share with you today a paper by Dr. Kevin Klingle and his colleagues out of Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, entitled Treatment of Unstable versus Stable Slipped Capital Femoral Epiphysis Using the Modified Dunn Procedure. 
The authors sought to compare the outcomes of the modified Dunn procedure, which is an open subcapital realignment via a surgical dislocation, between patients with acute unstable and chronic stable skiffies. Diagnosis was based on the chronicity of symptoms, the loader criteria, as well as intraoperative findings. They identified 44 patients through a retrospective chart review, of which 31 were acute unstable slips and 17 were chronic stable, and then evaluated clinical and radiographic measures before and after surgery. Acute unstable slips were taken to the OR at an average of 13.9 hours after presentation. Average follow-up was more than two years for both groups. They discovered significant differences in outcomes between the two groups. Postoperative Southwick angle was smaller in the unstable group. Also, the femoral morphology was closer to normal in the unstable group, with a longer femoral neck length and the greater trochanter found below the center of the femoral head. Most strikingly, only 6% of patients with acute unstable slips developed AVN, in contrast to 29% of the chronic stable group. Three patients in the chronic stable group developed postoperative hip instability requiring further treatment. All cases of AVN presented within six months. The authors warn that it is difficult to restore normal anatomy in patients with chronic stable skiffies. They support the continued use of the modified Dunn procedure for acute unstable skiffy, but caution that it is associated with a higher rate of complications in patients with chronic stable slips, including instability and AVN. Well, that's it for this month's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. 